Well, good morning. Hope you can join me in opening up a Bible to Exodus chapter 17. We'll be starting out from verse 8 once we get going. Uh, But one of the words that has become a mainstay in our vocabulary over the past couple of months is the word essential. Particularly related to identifying and really celebrating essential workers in the fight against the coronavirus. Um, And one of the most interesting parts is really to see who is considered essential when there's a public health crisis. Um, especially the groups of people that we tend to overlook in quote-unquote normal times. Surely there's the doctors and nurses, but it also includes the whole hospital staff, right? From technicians and administrators to the cleaning crew to the kitchen staff. Outside the hospital, essential workers include sanitation workers, delivery drivers, grocery store cashiers, and etc., Essential workers that cannot be overlooked for a healthy community in hard times. And with that in mind, I think it is good timing for us to come to a passage in the book of Exodus that often gets overlooked. A passage, though, that gives us essential lessons for a healthy community of faith amongst the people of God. What, what are the things that, again, can tend to be overlooked, but when it comes down to it, are vital or essential for a church that carries out its mission to make disciples to the glory of God? That's what we're after this morning. And we're in Exodus 17. We're in this kind of in-between stretch um, where the, the people of God have um, already been delivered from the hand of Pharaoh at the Red Sea, uh, but they're not yet at Mount Sinai where God will meet them and uh, provide them with the Ten Commandments. And in this in-between, they get a crash course of essential lessons. And just like grocery store workers often get overlooked in our day, these lessons often get overlooked in the church. But make no mistake, they are essential. And so we're going to get going with Exodus 17. We're going to start with verses 8 to 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Repetum. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Essential lesson number one for a healthy community of faith. The priority of persistent prayer. Last week, we saw Israel 
experiencing internal conflict due to grumbling and infighting. And now we see Israel experience external conflict, right? Being attacked by the Amalekites. And so right there we can pause and kind of just take note that the people of God will always experience the threat of conflict both internally and externally. We always need to be aware of the threats uh, to the church that we cause ourselves due to pride, due to ego, due to disagreements, as well as the threats that might come from outside our church community, whether it be um, false teaching or persecution or ridicule or anything of the sort. But in this case, we know uh, at this point just a little bit about the Malachites. Uh, their lineage traces back to Esau, the brother of Jacob in Genesis 36. Amalek was Esau's grandson, and they kind of grew to become this nomadic people in the Sinai Peninsula that were known for attacking and plundering other nations. And Israel now crosses the Red Sea. They're the new kid on the block. They are a sizable group moving through the wilderness. And this Amalekite territory, Israel is fresh blood. And so they attack, but they attack with a cowardly tactic. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 25 as he is recounting this battle to Israel years later. Verses 17 and 18. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. You see what they did? You see their strategy? They attacked the end of the caravan, where the most vulnerable were, the ones that were falling behind the rest, and they tried to cut off the tail and plunder the weak. And so back in Exodus 17, Moses reacts quickly. He gets Joshua, the first time, by the way, that we're introduced to him, the one who will eventually be Moses' successor. And he says, gather an army, and go defend our people against Amalek. That you go fight with the sword, and meanwhile I will go to the top of the hill and hold up the staff of God in my hand. And you heard how it went. When Moses held up his hands, Joshua prevailed. When Moses dropped his hands, Amalek prevailed. So Aaron and her come alongside Moses. They hold his hands up until the end of the day. And Joshua defeats the Amalekites. So essential lesson number one for the church, the priority of persistent prayer. And quickly, we see just three parts of this lesson. Number one, prayer depends on God's power. Now you might be an attentive listener and reader and you might be asking at this point, um, wait, wait a minute, I don't see anywhere in the text where Moses prayed. Well, why, why is prayer the point of all this? The reason is because in raising his hands with the staff, he is appealing to God's power and provision. In the Bible, the raising of hands is associated with prayer. 
Recall even back um, when Pharaoh was desperate uh, for the plague of hail to end and he's begging Moses to, quote, make an appeal to Yahweh. This is how Moses responds. Quote, when I have left the city, I will extend my hands to Yahweh and the thunder will cease. The Apostle Paul will pick up on this language in the New Testament as he writes to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. The victory of Israel over the Amalekites hinged upon the power of God. And when Moses' hands were raised... They prevailed. And when his hands lowered, they struggled. And in the same way, it is essential for the church to keep its figurative hands raised, depending on God's power in persistent prayer. And Paul will make it very clear in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle in the church today is not against flesh and blood like Israel's battle was, but it is a spiritual warfare against the forces of darkness in this world. And our enemy is cowardly. And he attacks where we are weakest, individually and in our churches. And he creates division and he brings oppressive tactics to the church, which is why Paul concludes the passage of Ephesians 6 talking about the armor of God by saying this, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. The reason why we need to pray at all times is because we are at all times in a spiritual war. But how easy it is for the church. I mean, let's be honest, especially a church like Grace in a suburban, kind of well-to-do context, how easy it is to just look over the essential power of prayer. But if we don't pray not just know about prayer and talk about prayer. If we don't pray, it's not because we don't need it. It's because we don't realize how desperate we really are. But we do pray because our church depends on God's power, not our own. Number two, um, prayer empowers action. Uh, Prayer did not eliminate the need for Joshua to go down and fight with the sword, but it empowered Joshua's fighting, right? In God's providence, he used Moses' appeal in prayer to strengthen Joshua's men and strategy in battle. And this is what we need to understand. Prayer doesn't make us inactive. Prayer doesn't make us lazy. It speeds us up. It doesn't mean like, okay, well, if I pray, it just means whatever. I just sit back and do nothing, and God will just do it all. Prayer empowers and motivates us to act and to do the things He has called us to do. It's a, it's a both and, prayer and action, not an either or. And the reason why this is especially important for the church in 2020 is because if you notice, um, 
Anytime a tragedy happens that gets kind of national or regional headlines, uh, people will react by uh, the saying, prayers for blank, or uh, you know, for a city, or for doctors and nurses. Um, um, and, but then there's usually, and increasingly so, a kind of hostile reaction to those statements saying, hey, we don't need your prayers, we need action. Especially now with the coronavirus, we're, we're saying, and we have been doing alongside Christians across the world, that praying that God would be merciful, that God would eradicate and eliminate this threat. And, and people will kind of hear that or say that and go, man, we don't need prayer, we need science. But like, here's what we just need to like, lay down. In, in the Christian worldview, like, who says we have to choose between the two? Like, prayer is what bolsters and empowers action. Faith is what strengthens science. God created science. We are pro-science. And we pray and we depend on God's power. And then we take action or we support those who are taking action with the means we are given to do so, whether it be science or love and compassion to provide for the least of these. So just saying you, you want to rely on action without prayer is like saying you want to fly an airplane with no engine. Man, you can go ahead and give it a shot if you want, but you will lack the power to do the things that you want to do. And then number three, Third part of essential lesson number one, prayer is a corporate act. I love that Moses could not do this by himself. Right? Like we, we kind of see his humanity here, right? He, he, he's a mediator on behalf of God's people, but he is not Jesus. He's a shadow to Jesus, but he is not Jesus. He cannot do this on his own. And he kind of knew that going to the top of the hill because he brought two, two guys with him. Like, I mean, just, just put yourself in his situation. Like, let's say the staff weighed 15 pounds. How long could you take a 15-pound object and just keep it raised above your head? Man, it, it might be easy for a few minutes for you. Maybe, man, you're fit and strong. Maybe you can do it for an hour. But how about several hours? How about all day? Man, maybe you got time with everything that's going on. Give it a shot today, all right? Give, how long can you hold the weight above your head? Just let me know how it goes. But in the same way, prayer is impactful but limited when you are alone. But when we pray together, wherever two or three are gathered, we corporately bring one another before the throne that we are of one mind. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he, he uses corporate language. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. He teaches us that even when you do pray alone, you at the very least have others in mind. And corporate prayer within the local church is essential for us, and it so often gets overlooked. Corporate prayer can be done with just members gathering on their own and praying together. Corporate prayer can happen amongst the grace groups praying together. 
We certainly pray corporately every single week in our corporate weekly gathering. But we also commit entire evenings for the purpose of persistent prayer. Many of you know that for the past month and a half, we have been doing corporate prayer and worship on Zoom every other Wednesday night. And it has been powerful. Each of those gatherings, we've had anywhere between 75 and 80 of us on Zoom, corporately praying together. And I would just say this, those are the highest numbers I've ever seen at a Grace Church prayer meeting in my past five years. And so this Wednesday, we're, we're just plowing ahead. We're, we're doing another Zoom corporate prayer meeting, 8 o'clock. If you haven't joined us, join us, man. Like, let's make that 150 this week. 8 p.m. Wednesday, corporate prayer. Central lesson number one, the priority of persistent prayer. Let's keep going. We're going to jump to chapter 18. We're going to read verses 5 through 12. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Central lesson number two, the priority of gospel proclamation. We see now that Moses' family is back in the mix. We haven't heard from them or about them since way back in Exodus chapter 4, um, in that bizarre passage where Moses' wife, Sipporah, circumcised their son and in doing so saved Moses' life. But now they're back, and they're back with Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. We don't know when Moses sent his wife and his two sons back home to Jethro because we know that they traveled to Egypt with him. So we don't know if they were sent back while they were in Egypt, maybe before the plagues or before the exodus, or if they were with them all along. And it was only recently that he kind of sent his family ahead to go uh, touch base with Jethro. But either way, they're back. And just imagine Jethro's perspective here. Okay, The last time he saw Moses, Moses was leading a flock of sheep that Jethro owned to just give his son-in-law a job. He was just a nomad in this sheep, with some sheep in the desert. And now he comes back, and he comes upon this nation of one to two million men, women, and children with great possessions, and Moses is their leader, right? Like Moses, you, you had to think, was tempted to be like, how do you like me now, Jethro? 
I'm sure many of you, like me, um, have been watching the Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN uh, because you're going through withdrawal with no sports. This is the closest we get. Uh, But the the, the 10-part documentary, The Last Dance, this would be like if the high school coach who cut Michael Jordan from the varsity team just went kind of off the grid for 10 years, maybe overseas, and then comes back 10 years later to see Jordan, who is the best player in the world. Like, how do you like me now, coach? Well, by God's grace, Moses is more humble than that, more humble than me. And Jethro comes, and Moses actually kind of embraces his father-in-law, still pays respect to him, bows to him. And then they catch up on lost time, and Moses checks in with him, kind of asks how he's doing. And Moses is in no mood to boast about himself or what he has done in all this. But rather, verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh, how the Lord had delivered them. He shares the good news of what God has done. Jethro, he has saved us for his glory so that we might come out and worship him. And it's not because of us, Jethro. It's not because we're so great. It is his mercy. It is his grace. And Jethro, hearing the good news, believes in God, rejoices over what God has done. Remember, we're told that he he was a pagan priest of some sort. That was his job. And yet, he declares, Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh. Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods. He rejoices. He worships. He makes a burnt sacrifice, joining him with the people of God. It is essential for the people of God at all times, in all places, to prioritize the proclamation of the good news. Or the word we use that means good news, the proclamation of the gospel. That is our role. We don't boast in ourselves. We don't tell people of all the good things we've done or how devote we are or how impressive we are. Um, no, we tell people about God, who He is, what He has done, how He has delivered us from sin through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and we invite people to respond to join with the people of God. You know, a part of any church, you know, even thinking about us at Grace Church, there's a lot we are called to do, especially now in this time, to be helpers, right? To be givers, to, to help those in need, to come alongside those on the front lines and support both spiritual and physical support, to serve the least of these, like we're doing through Star of Hope, But at our core, our priority is always to herald the good news, to open our mouths and tell people about Jesus. That is 
our job, not just my job, not just the staff's job, that, that our evangelism strategy is not to create big events so that they can come hear me or they can come hear impressive um, kind of presentations, that we want to decentralize this, that we want to equip and pour into you so that you go to your Jethro's and you have those relationships and you proclaim the gospel in conversation one-on-one brothers and sisters the harvest is still full and the workers are still few and there are people in your life especially right now that are ripened to hear the good news of Jesus Christ right now and everybody who has come to faith and you just look back on your story Somebody in your life had to cross that pain line, that awkward line. Somebody told you about Jesus. It's how God designs the building of his kingdom to empower his people to speak, to answer the call, to be faithful to overcome fears and share boldly and trust the rest of the Lord. Essential lesson number two for the church the priority of gospel proclamation. All right, let's finish the chapter. We're going to read chapter 18, verses 13 to 27. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw that all he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you were doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they should decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people and all and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father in law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Number three, essential lesson number three, the priority of plurality leadership. So Moses has this take your father-in-law to work day, and Jethro is looking on as to what is happening, and he cannot be silent based upon what he sees. For the entire day, from morning to evening, Moses is serving as judge and jury for every dispute among the nation of Israel. 
that the people are lined up, right? Starts early in the morning, the line wraps around the block, and he just settles case after case after case. Small matters, big matters, decision after decision, calling out next. And Jethro is watching this and goes, are you serious? Like, what is this? This is how you operate? And to Moses' credit, he listens. Again, his humility shines through. Moses could have been like, oh, wait, wait a minute, hold up, all right? I'm the leader here. I led them this far. This is how I do things. But instead, he submits to wise counsel. I wonder if, like me, you kind of think about times in your life when um, you, you find yourself in this situation where you are just so used to doing something a certain way because it's the way you've always done it, but it's really inefficient in how you do it. And, and someone kind of comes along and there's kind of fresh eyes on the situation and they're just like, hey, um, why, why do you do it that way? You, you, you ever try this? Um, and I just know in the living rooms across North Jersey right now, people are just side-eyeing family, all right? Like, take it easy, take it easy. Um, but our initial reaction to that, when somebody says that to us, it's always negative, right? Like, what do you mean? I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for a long time. But then internally, you're kind of like, dang it, they're right. But here's Jethro. He's a new believer by all counts, right? He doesn't have the experience with God that Moses does. He doesn't have the spiritual maturity. But he does have a wealth of experience in leadership. He used to be Moses' boss. And he has wisdom here to share that Moses should implement. Just goes to show how God in his common grace does provide wisdom to the world in a certain sense that we can learn from in the church. That, that, that we should never allow just kind of advice or systems or strategies outweigh our reliance upon God, but we should learn wisdom and best practices wherever we can. But you notice Jethro doesn't just say, hey Moses, this isn't good for you. He says, it's not good for the people of God either. If everything just depends on you, everyone suffers. A plurality of leadership doesn't just protect the leader, it protects and guides the people being led. From our perspective today, certainly this is just kind of commonplace in the world now, whether it be kind of government structures with you know, federal and state and county and local, um, or you know, large or even small corporations where you have executives and general managers and middle managers and so on. But most importantly, a plurality of leadership is essential in the community of faith within the local church. Churches that seek to be faithful and effective to the mission of glorifying God by making disciples will seek to spread out leadership at every level that is both sustainable and replicable beginning with a plurality of elders. That, that, that throughout the New Testament, Paul is clear and exhorting each local church to raise up and appoint able men 
who were in the church to uh, lead, to oversee, to shepherd the flock and serve as servant leaders. He's not just looking for one guy. It doesn't even seem like he's looking for two or three, but a plurality in relation to the size of the church raised up from within the church. And Jethro, and when he gives Moses guidance on what kind of men should Moses look for, he says two things. Look for the men who fear God and second, who are trustworthy. Notice he says nothing about their skills, nothing about their personality types, nothing about their experience or their good ideas. He says, appoint men of character. Men who have a good relationship with God. Men who can be trusted by others. When it comes to the membership of Grace Church, nominating and appointing elders to serve here, we care far more about character than ability. And that's what Paul kind of outlines in 1 Timothy and Titus when he talks about who should serve as elders. And I just know, and I know I've only been in this about five years, but if, if, if I was given a choice of two men, and one had this kind of huge leadership experience, really successful everywhere he's been, gets the job done, uh, but not so much of a good character guy, or kind of immature in the faith. And on the other hand, I had a guy who was really limited to no real experience, not a really impressive resume, but loved God deeply, was mature in the faith, and had high character. Man, I'm serious. Give me that second guy every single time. You can teach and grow in ability far easier than you can teach character. And at the local church level, the New Testament says that the, the delegating of leadership and authority begins with kind of the elders and the staff, but their primary job in turn is to equip the church, meaning the membership, the congregation, to do the work of the ministry, right? Ephesians 4. So, so it's not just a few leaders and, 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 you know, who kind of do it all and then everybody else. It's equipping the church for every member ministry, where we are all part of the body, where we've all been gifted by the Holy Spirit to build up the church in different ways to the fullness of Christ, and that we all have a role in making disciples. This is essential for a healthy community of faith, a plurality of leadership at every level. From the senior pastor down to members just discipling and leading one another. And I am just so grateful that I can stand before you and say that at Grace Church, I am not a one-man band. That I am not expected to do it all, which is good news. You know why? Because I can't do it all. We would all suffer if that were the case. But I do, in like small ways, just need to be constantly reminded of this, because if I kind of take an honest look at my uh, ministry, um, a, a weakness from the beginning has always been delegating. Uh, and, and, you know, it was a huge weakness early on. 
by God's grace, I think I've gotten to a better place, but I still have a ways to go. And, and I can remember often uh, in my first couple years as senior pastor, uh, that Pastor Dre- Jeff was in a way my Jethro, where I have vivid memories of him kind of walking into my office and just be like asking like, hey, um, why are you doing this? Why are you involved in this? You shouldn't be doing this. You, you, you should be passing that off. You've got to raise somebody up. And it was never a matter of you had like the important jobs that you should do and then unimportant jobs that others should do. That's not what it was. It was just the fact that you can't do everything. And we will all suffer if you try and do everything. And not only is that unsustainable, again, but that's bad for the church. Everyone suffers when we don't delegate well. And we see this in the early church of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6, that there were concerns brought to the apostles about how um, certain widows were being neglected in the serving of food. And they responded in Acts 6, that it is not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. You see it? Like, that's a telling example. They're not saying, hey, that work is beneath us. They're not saying it's unimportant. We have important things to do. They recognized how important it was to handle that situation. But they also recognized it could not be done by them. So they appointed a team of seven men who, did you see, of good repute to delegate that authority to. And so it's essential for us at Grace Church that we don't have a few at the top doing it all and everybody else watching, but that we want a culture that is increasingly raising up and equipping men and women throughout our ministry to be leaders, to delegate authority, not just delegate tasks. And there's generally going to be two reasons why someone doesn't delegate. They're either too afraid to ask and burden somebody else, or more often, they are too prideful to let someone else do the work because in a way, they like having all the power and authority. But by God's grace, we don't need to be ruled by fear or pride. And we can lean into the essential lesson for the community of faith of the priority of a plurality of leadership. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is the head of this church. Not me. Not any elder. Not any member. This is Jesus' church. And we are under shepherds to the chief shepherd. And we strive to glorify his name, not ours. So church, there we have it, tucked in the middle of Exodus, three essential lessons that often get overlooked, but we need to commit to not overlook here. The priorities of persistent prayer, I'll see you Wednesday at eight o'clock, the priority of gospel proclamation, and the priority of plurality leadership. This is the work of the church. This is what will be recognized and celebrated as essential in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this crash course on discipleship, Lord, in a passage that often does get overlooked. 
And I pray that you would lead us in all grace and wisdom to um, believe in you and to implement these lessons, Lord, for the glory of your name and for the impact and good of Grace Church. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.